Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And this is Thursday, May 30th, 2019. Anyone who's been involved in foreclosure litigation knows that things are not what they appear. Notice I didn't say things are not always what they appear. If there is a foreclosure in which securitization is anywhere in the picture, including in the background, things are not what they appear. Revealing the absence of facts that would constitute legally required foundation for the introduction of key elements of a case is the key to beating back fraudulent foreclosures. Every loss by a homeowner to an alleged remic trust U.S. Bank or whatever, can be traced to the fact that the pro se litigant or the lawyer representing the homeowner assumed that something that was said by the lawyers or some witness was true or that the documents on the other side were authentic. Don't make that assumption. Every lawyer should carefully examine the cases on facial validity. That's the beginning. Facial validity frequently goes to the heart of the claim. It's sitting there on the face of one or more documents, but we all tend to gloss over it because it's it's a recorded document or it's notarized or somehow it looks authentic and valid. If they're presenting it, it's neither authentic nor valid. That's the assumption you should make. And in making that assumption, you may very well dispel the legal presumptions that they're using. Revealing the absence of facial validity creates a strong argument against the legal presumptions without which the banks cannot prevail. They cannot prove their case. Tonight I talk about the specific ways you can challenge the facial validity of the loan documents, assignments, foreclosure complaint, notice of substitution of trustee, notice of default, notice of sale. Remember, this is all being recorded, and you can always come back to this recording or any of our other shows by going to blogtalkradio.com and searching for Neil Garfield Show. I'll be revealing tonight the specific structural analysis that I use 
and which the Living Lies team uses under my direction to analyze the facial validity of documents that are being used to initiate fraudulent yet legally effective foreclosures and sales of property. If you don't challenge it, the foreclosure becomes legal, valid, and enforceable, and eventually leads to unlawful detainer or eviction if you don't abandon the house, which is what most people do, unfortunately. If most people contested, we'd probably have a different uh, story on our hands, and the, uh, uh, the, the absence of evidence would have been revealed on a mass basis. Remember that despite what you might hear from those who are not regulated licensed professionals, only a court order can stop a foreclosure or a foreclosure sale. And that order, contrary to what I've seen on the Internet, must say that the foreclosure is dismissed, vacated, or stayed, and not just contain general rulings about the pendency of the current action. The filing of a different lawsuit does not stop the foreclosure. Unless a court order is issued by some court of competent jurisdiction that says stop the foreclosure, stop the sale. If that is not expressly stated, the foreclosure will continue. And by the way, don't rely upon assurances from whoever that says the sale was canceled. Make sure you know for sure that it's canceled and do whatever you have to do to confirm and reconfirm it. So you can only get a court order, by the way, by filing a lawsuit or a motion in court, depending upon the type of proceeding that was started. There is no letter or notice that stops the foreclosure, even if it's uh, recorded, uh, although recording some type of document does potentially cloud title for the foreclosing party. That does not seem to have stopped any foreclosures or foreclosure sales that I know about. As usual, I have two things to talk about relating to this topic and foreclosures in general before I get into the details on challenging facial validity of documents. If your lawyer cannot explain a successful defense to you so that you understand it and believe it, then it is not likely that that lawyer will have any greater success with the judge. I continually have reminded my associate attorneys and attorneys who come to me for litigation assistance that lawyers must have a clear picture in their mind of why their client should win. And they ought to believe it. Otherwise, the lawyer seems disinterested, apathetic, uninteresting, and not persuasive, even when they're technically right on everything they're saying in court. So the judge falls asleep and rules based upon more compelling, uh, the more compelling argument in court, which usually involves specific citations to specific provisions of specific documents and specific citations to law, including statutes and cases. If the lawyer has not explained clearly why you should win such that you understand it and are persuaded that you should win, the appropriate response, I think, is to say that you want the, the lawyer's argument to be more clear and more persuasive. 
Firing a lawyer merely sends you down the road of going from lawyer to lawyer. I'll admit that there's a number of people out there that are not as good as others. But generally speaking, a little work, the lawyer will step up to the plate. Uh, second thing I want to talk about is a new theory of action for compensatory damages or equitable distribution arising from the original transaction in which the loan contract was only one of several moving parts. I believe I've hit on something here, and I want to just mention it and continue to invite comments. Since the sales of certificates and hedge contracts and trading on those instruments and the, and the loan documents were inherently a part of the deal for the investment bank that either originated the loan or acquired the loan, my theory is that all those transactions were contemplated but not revealed to the borrower when the loan closing supposedly occurred. Most theories are focused on an attack that go to negating the foreclosure or decreasing the amount due by offset in defenses or claims. My new theory does not do that. It really does the opposite. It kind of reaffirms the loan contract and then goes on to assert that the revenue and compensation, the undisclosed revenue and compensation derived from the rest of the transaction taken in, in its entirety gives rise to an implied contract in which the borrower is essentially entitled to compensation or possibly royalties arising from the transactions taken as a whole. This takes the entire securitization issue and puts it squarely before the court saying that there should be a sharing of the revenue that was produced by the homeowner or borrower who gave up many things, including uh, the house's collateral. The transaction taken as a whole includes all the moving parts upon which the investment bank was completely relying but for which it would never have authorized, but for which it would never have authorized the loan of money or purchase of a loan. You know, I've said for years, for those of you who've been following me, that nobody spends hundreds of millions of dollars trying to market a 2% loan. They were marketing it because they weren't getting 2%, they were getting 2,000%. The, uh, but it wasn't allocated to the, the loan account itself. And by doing that, they pretended as though there was a loss. But in any event, assuming that you don't go that route of it wasn't really a loss and all that stuff, you can say, well, okay, let's go the other way and say that an implied contract arose because you knew that you wouldn't have done this deal but for the fact that you were going to sell the loan or aspects of the loan multiple times over using my name, reputation, signature, and the uh, collateral of the house itself. In the case where the investment bank actually originated the loan using sham conduits, the single transaction doctrine, which I mentioned going back as far as 2006, and the step transaction doctrine make it clear that the loan strictly uh, uh, strictly because the investment bank expected windfall profits 
uh, out of the origination of the loan, it occurred only because that was what was intended. The only two real parties in interest were the investment bank and the borrower. And everything in between constitutes the contract between them. Because it was selling certificates to some invest investors and hedge products based on those loans and certificates were sold to other investors. In both the single transaction and step transaction doctrines, the essential issue is who are the real parties in interest. In this case, it is the investment bank, in most cases, and the borrower. Everything in between represents part of the whole transaction, even if it was not disclosed to the borrower. Both parties are entitled to the benefit of the bargain for the express written contract and the implied unwritten contract. Truth in Lending Act requires disclosure of all compensation arising out of the origination of the loan, and the compensation is very broadly defined. And the doctrines of, that evolve from the term assumption that now include, for example, quantum merit or unjust enrichment, a claim can be made that the borrower gave his name, signature, credit reputation, and his house as his or her part of the bargain, and then an implied contract arose that he or she or they would receive the benefit of the implied bargain for the undisclosed portion of the transaction. This is classic assumption. For those people who are lawyers, they know what I'm talking about. For those people who aren't, they have no idea. The theory avoids all the pitfalls of attacking securitization and, in fact, embraces it and attacking foreclosures. If successful, it results in an award of damages that could be equal to or even exceed the amount demanded as due on the loan. Since the uh, uh, compensation, in most cases, amounts to 10 to 20 times the amount that was loaned, the amount of money that was loaned, even a 5% rate of compensation to the only other real party, the borrower, could result in damages plus interest that would be between 60% and 150% on average of the, of the loan amount. The investors would all be protected because they're not being sued, and they're Certificates could continue to be traded. The investment banks would be the one that would, would be sued. Comments and suggestions are hereby solicited. Write to Neil F. Garfield at Hotmail.com. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And the show is brought to you because of donations to the Living Lives blog from listeners like you. Thank you, folks. I am trying my best here for the last five years on radio and the last 13 years in articles, seminars, and appearances on radio and television to get the point across that homeowners can do and should win most of the foreclosures cases brought against them. Neither the blog nor the radio shows are supported by anything other than donations. And the seminars cannot occur unless we have a substantial increase in donations to offset the cost of creating and presenting the seminar such that the cost can be brought within affordable range for homeowners and lawyers. So please hit the donate button on the blog livinglives.me or livinglives.wordpress.com 
or call 954-451-1230. The basic premise of all foreclosures is that the foreclosure is necessary and legal to compensate and protect a party who is losing money because a borrower homeowner is not paying their legal debt to the party that owns the debt. They must assert the position that they are losing money because they loaned money or because they bought the debt. One of those things has to be true. If neither of them are true, they don't belong in court. That's like the issue of standing. Look at Article 9 of the Uniform Commercial Code, which uh, Section 203, which requires payment of value as a condition preceding to enforcement of a mortgage or deed of trust. This is to be distinguished from Article 3, which enables a non-owner of the debt to enforce the note and get a judgment for damages against the maker of the note. One of the things that most lawyers and judges forget is that the UCC is not some theoretical treatise on commercial paper. It's law, and it isn't just common law. It is statutory law adopted in all U.S. jurisdictions. And most efforts to construe the wording of the statute by courts attempting to tilt justice in the direction of the bank have been rejected eventually on appeal. The law is clear, it is express, it is explicit. A condition precedent means by definition that it is something that must occur first before anyone can take the next step. Sounds a lot like standing, right? That's because it's the same thing. All the legislator, legislatures of all U.S. jurisdictions have decided by adoption of Article 9, Section 203 of the UCC that while they allow for notes to be enforced more freely, the loss of someone's property must only be at the hands of someone who has first, before attempting to enforce, has loaned money or purchased a debt. The essential elements of a defense must, in the end, reveal that there are more questions than there is confidence that the proceeds of foreclosure will go to pay down the debt to an owner of that debt. As long as a presumption is there that the proceeds are going to go to the owner of the debt, the homeowner loses. That's what gets traction and which will be the focus and has been the focus of thousands of cases in which homeowners have prevailed with a dismissal of the foreclosure, vacating the sale, judgment for the homeowner, or a settlement to keep the homeowner quiet about basic flaws in the entire scheme of residential mortgage loans and foreclosures. One side note that illustrates and highlights the importance of this work defending homes from foreclosure, I recently received information from more than one homeowner who literally uh, received notices of two foreclosures from two different servicers representing two different trustees, U.S. Bank and Deutsche Bank, each saying they were the trustee for the same trust. This is important because it shows that the documents, all of them, are fabricated, including the pooling and servicing agreements, assignments, etc. For a successful defense, you must accept the reasonable probability that every part of the claim brought against the homeowner is a lie. 
So let's look at an example with six layers, which Goldman Sachs Investment Bank, the mother of all this chaos, calls laddering. You know, like the ladder you climb up. This is a fictional example. In the fictional example, Mary Jones' name appears as authorized signer on an assignment, let's say, assignment of mortgage. Uh, Mary Jones appears as the authorized signer for Aquin Servicing as attorney, in fact, for U.S. Bank as trustee for... Uh, as trustee, as successor to Bank of America, as trustee, as successor to LaSalle Bank, as trustee for the XYZ Trust 2006. This is designed to be intimidating and confusing because it usually works until some enterprising lawyers pick up on it and start to pick it apart to reveal that there's nobody home. There's nothing there. There is no case. You have six layers in this example, which are not readily apparent if you read too quickly. Some layers are susceptible to challenge on facial validity, and then facial validity of the foreclosure lawsuit or the notice of default. Other layers are subject to later investigations, discovery, cross-examination, etc., but they all lead to winning the case. So you have Mary Jones, first layer, who may or may not exist and whose signature might be forged or robo-signed and whose authority as authorized signer, quote-unquote, is yet to be tested. That alone does not necessarily indicate facial invalidity, but it is something that could be probed in discovery and so forth and perhaps flipped if you find Mary Jones or if you get another witness that uh, indicates that the document was fabricated. You have, then on second level, you have Aquin, who supposedly is the attorney in fact, as attested to by Mary Jones, whose knowledge is unknown and in all probability has no knowledge of Aquin's authority, just as she probably has no knowledge of the existence of the document or the content of the document on which her name appears. More importantly, there's nothing recorded anywhere giving Aquin as servicer, who only operated under servicing agreements, by the way, a power of attorney to execute anything for anyone. They can still prove that they had the power of attorney, but it's not apparent from the face of the document, nor is it available in public records. In order to prove the power existed, you have to go to parole evidence. In the absence of any, that's outside evidence, evidence outside the document, that means the document is facially invalid. In the absence of any power of attorney in the public records or attached to the document that supposedly claims the power of attorney, they would have to allege in their complaint or otherwise assert it in an affidavit that's recorded that Aquin had a power of attorney that was valid, unrevoked, and effective as of the date they filed the instrument. 
and that it was executed by someone with authority to sign the power of attorney on behalf of a party who had a specific financial interest in the debt. We had a case that we won a couple of years back where the power of attorney was executed by Chase, but Chase had nothing to do with the case. So you got to be careful about on whose behalf the power of attorney was supposedly fabricated. Who signed the power of attorney? Does the power of attorney actually exist? When did it exist? Um, it probably never existed. But even if it did, the notice is defective because it relies on the facial validity or or the assess the assignment is is defective because it relies on the facial validity of implied but unstated other instruments. So nobody looking at the chain of title on record where title is, is recorded would know whether or not this document was genuine. Failing that, the foreclosure complaint must be dismissed with leave to amend alleging the proper elements to prove foundation for the documents that have already been attached, and a new document must be attached to the complaint, which is the power of attorney, along with probably an affidavit. And that would go for the notice of default, notice of substitution of trustee. These are all grounds for cancellation of the instrument on the basis of facial invalidity. But if you don't raise the issue, it's waived. Then you go to the third level which is the XYZ Trust 2006. Look closely. There are no beneficiaries except the investment bank, no named trustee with any right to know about, much less administer the active affairs of the trust, no active affairs of the trust, no settler, no trustor, and no thing which has been entrusted to a named trustee for the benefit of named beneficiaries. In particular, the, the subject loan has no record of being entrusted to the trustee by somebody who actually owned the debt. In all probability, the trust doesn't exist, and it certainly has no relevance to the loan if the loan was not acquired by the trust, either through a purchase by the trustee, uh, LaSalle was the original one, using trust assets to pay um, or by conveyance by a settlor to the trust where the settlor owned the debt. These things didn't exist. What's missing from facial validity uh, of any document here is the legal and proper customary identification of the alleged trust by stating it's uh, the, the state in which it was organized or under what jurisdiction it exists. So then you have the fourth level, LaSalle Bank, who was in a reverse mer merger with ABN AMRO, which was then acquired by Citi. Uh, was the subject loan ever entrusted to LaSalle? No. Uh, uh, not by anyone who, who owned it. The fifth level is Bank of America, a successor by merger to LaSalle. BOA acquired LaSalle, presumably from Citi, uh, possibly from the shareholders of uh, ABN AMRO, but all questions of fact as to the mergers aside, what interest or right to the subject loan, debt, note, or mortgage uh, was transferred in the merger? And the answer is there was none. 
because it had already been sold and resold out of the entire chain. The chain, nobody in the chain retained ownership of the debt. The, the final level is U.S. Bank, who is said to have bought the trustee rights from Bank of America. This is a whole other issue. This is facially invalid because there is no law suggesting that the position of trustee of any trust can be bought and sold like a commodity. I don't think it can. Nor is there any reference, assertion, or even suggestion that any specific loans were transferred to the to Bank of America for administration over the loan, including receipt of payments and tendering of those payments less expenses to the owners of the debt. That's because neither U.S. Bank nor any servicer actually tenders the borrower's money to anyone who owns the debt as payment of the debt. So keeping these things in mind, and remember you can re-listen to this, you can, you can attack both the substance and facial validity of virtually all the documents used in foreclosure. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.